Hey, this is Max from the Arkells, and you're listening to Underground Sports Philadelphia. going on everybody welcome in to episode number 464 of underground sports philadelphia it's kb and matt coming at you with a loaded show tonight we got to talk phils we got to talk union we got to talk eagles and it is the week before survivor season 43 so we're going to give you our survivor preseason discussions at the end of the show for the real ones uh, we are live on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch, so what's up to everybody that's not normally watching live, uh, but we got big time things to talk about tonight, but before we get started, make sure you guys are following us on the socials at UndergroundPHI on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook.com slash UndergroundSportsPHI, Twitch.tv slash UndergroundSportsPHI, uh, Big time stuff going on over on the socials, so make sure you're following us there. Follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Castarina. Follow me at KBIZZL311. Check out the website, undergroundsportsphiladelphia.com, for all of our written content. Subscribe to the podcast feed, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We are there. Subscribe, leave those five-star ratings and reviews. Helps more people find the show. Gets more people involved with underground sports and of course subscribe to the underground sports philadelphia youtube channel where you get full video episodes of every single podcast on our network from underground sports philadelphia to top bins with matt and dom outside the box with myself and dj uh plus a whole slew of other podcasts on our youtube channel and uh we're on that road to 1k so make sure you subscribe be a friend tell a friend smash the like button ring that bell icon and comment down below with your thoughts on the Phillies, the Union, the Eagles, preseason Sixers, and of course Survivor as well. Big thank you to our sponsors who make this show happen. Main Auto LLC, Security 21 Security Systems, Paul J. Gillespie Incorporated, the Dental Wellness Center of Vineland, our homies over at Pickup. We'll talk to you guys about them a little later on in the show. Tomahawk Shades, the best small batch eyewear in the game. Go to TomahawkShades.com and use code USP. For 25% off your order of sunglasses, blue light glasses, watches, hoodies, shirts, and everything in between at TomahawkShades.com. Use code USP at checkout for 25% off your order. Our pals over at Kenwood Beer. Best merch drop I've seen in a long time from any company, let alone a beer company. They got the Kenny Rope hats and the It's a Bad Day to Be a Kenny shirts still available. Go get them before they're gone. And, of course, use that all-new and improved Kenny Tracker on KenwoodBeer.com and see who's got Kenwood Beer on tap in the Philadelphia area. you got to be 21 or older to do so. And, of course, please drink responsibly. And, of course, our pals over at Bino they dropped the Team France board last week in their World Cup drops. And I don't know if this was planned or not, Matt, but this coming Friday, they're dropping the Team England board. 
uh, very timely, if you will, and uh, it looks sweet. So go check that out at BinoBoard.com. Set your alarms because that thing's going to drop on Friday at noon Eastern time. And uh, you can go to BinoBoard.com. Get your hands on any of the World Cup boards, your own custom board, or any boards they have available, plus merch and apparel. And you can use our code BINOUSP, that's B-I-N-H-O-U-S-P, for 10% off your order at BINOBoard.com. What's going on, Matt? Living the dream. The uh, The Philadelphia Phillies are still living the dream, as it's almost it's almost time. But the playoffs are in sight, as they, uh, they beat the Marlins last night, and... I think a useful piece of uh, future bar trivia, Matt, will be which uh, hitter in baseball during the 2022 MLB season hit two home runs off of Sandy Alcantara. And if that bar trivia happened tonight, the one and only player would be Nick Maton. As we all would have guessed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nice little homestand, which was the kind of the medicine Phillies needed to go 5-1 and one on that short stint kind of correct course a little bit which is what we've wanted them to do kind of what we expected them to to be honest um it's felt like a really volatile wild ride with the phillies but if you actually look at like the schedule it hasn't really been it's just no i think been a a big overcorrection anytime this team drops you know two or three games in the span of a week it's felt uh you know it's felt much more disastrous than it's actually been and you look at most teams most teams are going to have these kind of Peaks and Valley, unless you're the Braves, apparently you're just going to win every every game since like June June twentieth. Uh, but yeah, you know, you just consider the the Phillies' position now. Uh, you're like you're not there yet, but the the people who handle stats and infographics and things like that are getting getting the magic number sheets out that that have not been touched. There's dust on a lot of those things. I think the magic number seventeen right now. Yeah, and you know we're we're climbing towards that being a graphic, you know, on NBC Sports Philly now, and you know on uh, ESPN. Like I'm sure ESPN next week will have a magic number article or something. Yeah, you know, we're we're getting close to that type of season, which the Phillies have not been involved in in a long time. So that's that's exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm super pumped. I mean, I went back and looked because we made our preseason predictions. I think either in March or or uh, you know early April about this team with their win totals. You had them at 85 wins. I went super aggressive and said 89. And somehow, some way, by the, the faith and grace of our Lord and Savior, Rob Thompson, both of those numbers are attainable this year. Yeah, I, I think, you know, really the, the Phillies are trending much more towards, uh, towards your prediction, uh, playing pretty much at like a 91 pace, which would be great. And I think the only thing you can limit, like we've said before, is that the, we did make that, that manager you know, decision earlier uh, because you, you think about where this team might be had they made that switch. But yeah, um, I mean, if the Phillies touch 90 wins, it's hard because I, I just think it's hard to conceptualize that, but that's, that's, that's a big milestone to reach uh, that I'm not sure that I, I fully believe. I mean, I didn't fully believe that this team could make that mark this year. Uh, I just felt like, you know, it, it could have been an underwhelming season and, you know, for the first two months it was that way, but, yeah, they they've come a long way. It has been a it's been a very strange journey uh, the start of this season. Yeah, it's been a, a wild ride, and somehow, some way, they've turned this you know god awful first two months of the season into more than likely ending a a decade long postseason drought. And I think that's one of the more unbelievable 
stories in all of baseball this year, and I, I saw a John Morosi tweet today um, that really put things in perspective, I think, for this Philly season in terms of how damn good Rob Thompson has been as the manager of this team. Um, so John Morosi tweeted, the Phillies are 57-33 and 33 under Rob Thompson, trailing only the Dodgers and the Braves among NL teams in that time. And if MLB's postseason began today, the NL's longest active playoff drought would be over, and the Phillies would play a wild card series in Atlanta. I find it very difficult to justify anyone else for manager of the year than Rob Thompson at this point. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a hard argument to, to make to to not give it to him, just because I, I think you consider what this team has done. Now, I think what will hurt the Phillies is that there'll be a wild card team. Typically, you know, those types of awards are going to go to someone that probably wins the division, right? Or, um, but I mean, you look around and there's no so many of these awards are, are narrative based. And I wouldn't say, I think maybe the, like the Mets would be like the narrative story, right? Uh, if the Yankees had held on and, and been as dominant as they were in like the first uh, half of the season and continued now through August, September, maybe, maybe that's the story, but um, there's no. There's no, I, I, I would say, like dominant storyline here that, that people are really latching onto. I think the Mets would really be it. But even then, you know, if they fall out of the division race and, and end up being a wild card team as well, I'm not sure if uh, if if that's the, the the same case there. So I think the Phillies do have that in their their quiver at least that they have this uh, again this strong narrative about the the changeover. I mean, it's it's night and day when you consider how this team is performing from from Girardi to Thompson. So that's. That's that's really the the base argument for him, and uh, I think it's hard to to say that he shouldn't be. Does he? He's at he's ve- at the very least in the conversation. Has to be. Yeah, has to be at, at the very minimal, like a finalist for the award, um, because you just see the the turnaround that they had. You know, they were on a sixty eight win pace under Joe Girardi this year, and now you know they're on the verge of winning eighty games, on the verge of finishing over five hundred. You know, if they can win. Was it uh, three more games? They'll finish over 500 for the first time in I don't even know how long. Um, and right now, if they end up sweeping the Marlins, Rob Thompson, I believe, will finish this season two wins shy of what Joe Girardi was able to amass as manager of the Phillies against the Marlins in two seasons and two months, uh, as Rob Thompson will finish with 12 wins against the Marlins this year if the Phillies are able to sweep them in this series. Which would be great. <laughs> I yes. Think, I think that too. And you know what's funny is it feels like every season we come into the year talking about, well, you know, if they just did better against the Marlins, and they did. They finally they finally did it. They finally figured it out. Yeah, I mean, looking here at our, uh, our trusty website that pulls up everything for us for Phillies Marlins, uh, mcubed.net, uh, the Phillies, the last three seasons, Matt, have finished under 500 against the Marlins. 2019, still under Gabe Kapler, they finished 9 and 10. In the shortened season in 2020, they go 3 and 7. Last year, they go 9 and 10. And right now, they are currently 11 and 6 against the Marlins in 2022. And only one of those wins came under Joe Girardi. And that was that four game series back in April down in Miami, where it was just like. It felt like the sky was falling. Um, the last time that the Phillies did win 13 games 
against the Marlins in a single season happened all the way back in 2010 when they went 13-5 and against the Marlins. And then the last time that they won more than 11 games against the Marlins, oddly enough, was the, the second year really of the downfall from the glory days. 2013, they went 12-7 and against the Marlins, and that's the last time that they won more than 11 games in a season against Miami. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that uh, that really puts it. So I'm trying to find odds on, on manager of the year, and it's not easy. Uh, so this is all the way back from July, uh, and it's uh, 2022 NL's manager of the year candidates uh, second half of the MLB season from Hefe Bet. Um, so Rob Thompson, Rob Thompson was at plus 800. Now again, this is this is you know middle of July, you know All Star break time. Um, you know, the Phillies weren't in, you know, as kind of strong as a position as they are now. Uh, but obviously, you know, highlights a lot about the change, uh, you know, how different this team has looked with him. Uh, Dave Roberts uh, of the Dodgers at plus 500 makes a lot of sense. But again, I think when you're talking narrative, when you're talking about manager of the year awards, a lot of times it doesn't go to the team that you expect to, to roll over and, and be great. Uh, you know, we see like voter fatigue all the time uh, across all major sports. Um who do we got here? Uh, Buck Showalter at plus one fifty. I would imagine he's he's probably the favorite. You know, just uh, just in general, like we mentioned uh, again, if the Mets hang on to the division too, because I think people just like like seeing the Mets do well. We don't, but I think right. naturally people kind of like uh, like the bigger markets, like a team like the Mets to be doing well. I think Steve Cohen, for whatever reason, is like people like him. I don't know why. Um, and so I, I think they have a lot of like they have a lot of goodwill. Inevitably, they will build them up to tear them down when they lose yes. in, in the uh, like the the wild card this uh, this off season. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I can't wait for the Mets demise. Whether it's you know in the NLDS if they somehow hang on to win the division, or uh, I think the way I was I was listening to talking baseball today and they were breaking down just the way that like the American League playoffs would break down, and I'm pretty sure that. If the Phillies were to walk away victorious in that series against the Braves, if it, if the series started today, they would go on to go and play the Mets in the NLDS, which would just be the biggest stress and anxiety inducer for any Phillies fan to have to go Braves-Mets back-to-back, but also just unbelievable scenes to have the New York Mets kick off you know, a full-blown actual Home and home series in the playoffs for the Phillies for the first time in a decade. I gotta tell you, like playing the Mets in the the first round doesn't fill me with a lot of comfort. No, uh, you know, I started thinking more and more of that about the postseason though, and I think again in a three game series too, I think is really the best case scenario in a sense for the Phillies though, because I think where this team is at their best is sort of the, the top heavy, you know, if you bring out like your best, how many, how many pitchers are you bringing to a series like that between like six and eight, you know, really only probably seeing six, you know, pitchers, maybe seven. Um, and you're really just bringing like your 10 best guys. Like, I think that actually really favors the Phillies in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, and this has been a feeling that I've had about them all season is that you could sell me more on them winning the world series than making the playoffs because they just think, this team has that ability in that that limited space in those you know short days of those short games to have really really effective hitting, really really effective pitching, and 
you know, I, I think too, they, they've been managed well here down the stretch too. You know, like I, I think, you know, there's, there's been instances where, you know, they have Mondays off, right. Uh, for, for the rest of the season, which is, is really crucial. And, you know, I, I think Rob Thompson has done some smart things in terms of rest and rotation. Um, he also hasn't been afraid to push the envelope a little bit too, which is a, a criticism of Girardi. Uh, there's been a few times where he's gotten aggressive with, with pitching and, uh, said, no, we're getting the win tonight. And I, I, I like that, uh, that bravery that he showed. So, um, I think there's a lot to like about this Phillies team in a three game series, especially because once you get to a seven game series, that changes a little bit. Depth does become a little more important. Um, you know, and, and that's where, you know, you might be exposed a little bit on, on the back end of, of some of the Phillies depth. But uh, in, in a three-game series where it's sort of just your best guys every other night or every night, I, I actually really like the Phillies odds more against most teams in a three-game series. And I mean, Zach Eflin and Sir Anthony Dominguez coming back at, like, almost perfect times, too, for the bullpen. Uh, Sir Anthony looked great last night against the Marlins, and you know you bring up a three-game series, Matt, and obviously you have Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler when, once he comes back from the injured list at the top of the rotation, but um, who would have thought that a three-game series for the Phillies would be Nola, Wheeler, Bailey, Falter? Um, because he has effectively saved this season in a lot of ways late, you know, down the stretch here for the Phillies, when Wheeler's gone down, every single start has been damn near magnificent. Only gives up the one run last night, and you kind of had to rely on the offense to pick it up, which they did. But I don't know what the the pitching mindset is down at AAA because not only has it kind of helped Bailey falter, but I saw a great tweet last night from Dave Esser that said, Jose Alvarado got sent down to the minor leagues earlier this year and somebody at the Iron Pigs told him, just throw cutters, bro. And he's turned into the second coming of Mariano Rivera. Which is great. Uh, you love to see it. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Bailey Falter, but, uh, you know, Andrew Bellotti as well has been like a, a big boon for especially like this relief pitching, this bullpen. Um, you know, we've gotten help from, I think, some unexpected places <laughs> for the Phillies uh, in this season. And, you know, Ranger Suarez is. I think shaken off a lot of it. It's very easy to forget how kind of shaky he looked through the first few months of the season. Uh, he's rounded into form. Nola's quietly had a great year. I know that he's had a, a few blips here and there, but I mean, you could probably say he's been better than uh, Wheeler, who's also been fantastic this season. I think we, Wheeler has much more like clout and capital, I think, in most yeah. fans' minds. Uh, like, Wheeler is like the that meme of like I I didn't do anything wrong I know this and I love you like you know, we we just for whatever reason are so quick to comfort Wheeler and so quick to say well Nola sucks like I I don't know Nola's been great this year um, it, it's probably been his best uh, season and most consistent season since his you know like uh, Cy Young candidacy um, and I, you know you might even make the case that maybe he's getting some votes for for Cy Young this year, right? Like, I, I don't know that he's done enough to win it, of course. But, um, yeah, I, I think those two as, you, as your, your, you know, tip of the spear as well, I, I think is really fantastic. And, again, if you're talking playoffs, you really only need two other guys to step up in that mode. And you don't even need guys going necessarily, you know, six, seven innings. You you get guys just to give you four or five and, and, and work your way through. And I think the Phillies can sort of, you know, duct tape it together, so to speak. Which in years past has been like, 
let's avoid the bullpen at all costs. And this year they've kind of, you know, pieced it together to be very formidable. Um, I think the one thing that I just am still scratching my head about right now down the stretch, just because of how much he's kind of struggled in the grand scheme of, you know, his season is why the Phillies have not allowed Bryson Stott to hit leadoff and move Kyle Schwarber down in the lineup simply because they've needed more power in the middle of the lineup and continuing to hit him leadoff when he's struggling does you no good. It kind of just puts you behind the eight ball in a sense because Schwarber at this stage of his career has kind of become one of those three true outcome players where he's either going to strike out, fly out, or hit a home run. Um, I, I would say just move him down in the lineup a little bit, put Bryce at the number three spot, let Schwarber hit four or five uh, for a you know for the rest of the season maybe, and let Bryson Stott just continue to hit because he's had uh, a phenomenal year you know since bouncing back from a, a very slow start and he's really caught on to be what everyone expects him to be as you know the shortstop and or second baseman of the future, and he's hitting you know incredibly well right now and he's one of those table setters at the top of a lineup that you want in the postseason yeah I I think with Schwarber I feel like so much of it is this has just been the way he's managed all season you know and, and in a sense I think you can make the case it's worked I think it is frustrating it's it's very frustrating when Schwarber is not on but I think he's just such a, a value to have um, I do think it's it's worth questioning though why why we haven't seen him you know moved outside of that spot because like you said he really is like a three outcome guy now and and maybe you know you have enough power in like that that three to five range already I I don't know that you necessarily need to be like dependent on Schwarber and you know maybe yeah maybe maybe some some around the edges I don't think we see it this season though I think it's very clear that this is just where they are as a team and and how they think about uh, everything and. Maybe next season we see something like that. I think next, you know, not to skip ahead all the exciting bits about the rest of this season and the potential playoffs here, but next season is going to be interesting too because you're hearing stuff about uh, Painter maybe, you know, making a you know a big push to to make the roster next season, and you know, you have young guys that have been worked in, um, you know, and and you expect you know to to improve over the off season, and and that's kind of what we had this year too, uh, you know, with with some of these guys. Boom, I think is. Uh, certainly solidified his place and yeah again it's it's easy to forget but there was legitimate questions I think over Alec Bohm at the start of the year and about his place and you know him potentially going back down to the minors moving back up like uh there there was uh, I think a little bit of concern about him and that's uh I mean the the I fucking hate this place was truly the the turnaround yeah for for Alec Bohm which uh hey you know we'll take it sometimes you just gotta fucking hate it here um yeah. I, I think the the way that this team is performing now, though, and they're they're hitting their strides in a lot of places, playing consistently, I think has been, you know, the big case about this Phillies team is, sure, they had that abysmal road trip, but they've bounced back from that. And now, you know, you do still have a couple of big-time series down the stretch here, seven against the Braves, most notably. You still have two against the Blue Jays, who are a playoff team. And you end your season against the Astros on the road, which will be, Kind of a, I, I think I like that series happening at the end of the year, and who knows, you know, what starters will be playing or not, depending on the status of where the Phillies are in the wild card standings, and then obviously the Astros right now are the number one team in the American League. But if there are starters playing in, you know, say two of those three games, 
I think that's a good way for the Phillies to kind of get a litmus test for the postseason and kind of prepare for a formidable opponent, which right now, if it's start, if the postseason started today, would be the Braves. And I think there's a lot of similarities between the Astros and Braves this year. Yeah, definitely. I, I also think it's a little unfair that Justin Verlander is still this good. Uh, I don't know. Just <laughs> doesn't sit right with me that, uh, that he's still this amazing. So, yeah, the Astros are catching them. Uh, at, at at that time when likely they'll have everything kind of tied up and, and you might just get uh, a lot of like platoon guys, uh, you know, they'll be racing. And that could be a crucial series for the Phillies. I mean, you know, you could be talking about, uh, you know, I know we've talked about the magic number already, but I mean, it could be a, a situation where the Phillies need to take, you know, I don't know, two out of their last five, two out of their last six to, to tie up, you know, the, the playoffs or the wild card spot and, um, you know, having, uh, uh, a series like that could be beneficial for the Phillies. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> yeah, and luckily for the way that the Phillies played earlier this year, they have the tiebreaker over the Padres. They have the tiebreaker over the Brewers. So effectively, when you look at the standings in the wild card right now, you can almost add an extra game in hand to where those two teams are behind um, because the Phillies do have those tiebreakers if things were to you know draw even. Um but let's take a look at our, our favorite statistical category, the NL East Run Differential, brought to you by our homies over at Pickup. You guys can go to playpickup.com, start playing the hottest headlines in sports. The NFL is here. All of those NFL props are there for every single week of the NFL season, season-long props, and, of course, those baseball postseason props will be there as well. So go to playpickup.com and start playing those headlines. Matt, right now the Atlanta Braves still in the lead for the crown of the NL East run differential, sitting a game behind the Mets as well in the division, but they're at a plus 159 run differential. The Mets are at a plus 134. The Phillies are at a plus 74. Do you, you know, there's still a decent amount of games left. Do you think the Phillies can finish with a plus 100 or better run differential this year? Especially that they have uh, a lot of games against the, the Nationals and Marlins left. Yes, uh, we've seen we've seen what a really nice series against the Nationals can do, uh, not only for your confidence but for that uh, that difference. So yes, I, I think I think it's certainly possible for them to, to eclipse uh, three digits. I would absolutely love to see that. Uh, the Miami Marlins they are sitting at a negative one hundred two, and retaking the lead for the worst run differential in baseball. That stolen franchise, the Washington Nationals, sitting at a whopping negative 207, sitting at 49-93 and 93 on the season. The other teams we typically look at, the Pittsburgh Pirates, are at a minus 199 run differential, somehow on a four-game win streak. They are the stupidest team in baseball this year. Uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers are just running away with the Major League run differential title at a plus 320. They have clinched their division already with, you know, two and a half weeks of the season remaining. And uh, the next closest team in the NL West in terms of run differential is the Padres uh, at plus 19. I mean, it's like they've like siphoned all the uh, all the all the good play for the rest of the division. I don't understand it. It is absolutely ridiculous. And then you look at, you know, a division like the AL Central where the division leading at 76 and 65 Cleveland Guardians, which if the Phillies were in that division, they'd be winning that division right now. Uh, the Guardians are at 76 and 65, and their run differential is a plus 32. 
and the Chicago White Sox are 73 and 70 in second place in that division with a negative 12 run differential. And then the Minnesota Twins are at 70 and 70 with a plus 16 run differential. You want to talk about a stupid, lousy division? It's the AL Central, or as I've heard people call it, the AL Mid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just sucks when you look at the Phillies division. <laughs> and it's like. Our poor, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to to our AL East brethren as well. Just, uh, it's a, t- it's a tough, it's a tough time to be an East Division member. It is it is a rough go round. Speaking of the AL East, the New York Yankees leading uh, the American League and run differential at a whopping plus two oh seven, uh, heading into you know these final weeks of the regular season. But I mean, it's it's looking good for the Phillies right now, sitting at. That second place wild card spot, two games up on San Diego. The Brewers are a game and a half back of San Diego in terms of the standings, and uh, it's just going to be nice when we finally see that graphic, like you said, that says the Phillies have clinched a postseason berth for the first time since 2011. It's uh, listen, I'm, you know, we're uh, <laughs> we're crossing fingers in this household still, but yeah, it does uh, it does feel like we're headed that direction, which feels great. It is pretty wild that, especially if the postseason started today, that both longest droughts in the National League and American League would come to an end for in terms of postseason appearances because the Mariners are also. We on were their just way. waiting on the Mariners, and I, I love that about us. I love that we have that uh, that friendship, that kinship. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad it seems like we'll be breaking that streak together. Yes, and then we will hand the torches off to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and the Detroit Tigers, who have not made the postseason since 2014, and neither team will make it this year. Rest in peace. Uh, let's talk about another team that's on their way to the postseason, Matt. Philadelphia Union, sitting at the top of the table of the entire league of MLS. LAFC came to a draw last night, which was phenomenal to see. Um Minnesota's coach just absolutely coming for LAFC's neck. I don't know if you saw that quote from him at halftime, uh, but those are things that I love to see. Uh, Union looking like they're on their way. They're on their way to potentially bringing home some more hardware uh, by the end of the day on October 9th. Yeah, uh, so they're they're in possession now of the, uh, the Supporter Shield race. Um, it is fully in their control what happens. If they win out, it is theirs. Um, and what's interesting, too, is typically teams, you know, you know, the Union obviously won the Supporter Shield in 2020. Typically teams that have done that have fallen off. You know, it's very rare for those teams to even make playoffs the next year, which the Union, of course, did. Um, and you can make the case that this team is in many ways better than that team from 2020. Certainly a lot more balanced. I think there's some more maybe high-end talent within this uh, squad. And it just feels like they're peaking at the right time as well. You know, you, you could compare them to LAFC, who for the first half of the season looked very strong. You know, I think obviously are always going to be sort of the, the bigger story in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, we're playing very well. You know, they certainly earned a lot of the discussion around them. But, you know, they've, they've obviously struggled a little bit as of late. They've had a little dip in form. And, you know, that's allowed the Union to kind of reclaim the spot. It felt far off, you know, even uh, a month and a half ago. But, Union, like we said, have just been on a, an incredible tear, you know, scoring. They've scored 25 goals in their last five home games. 
Um, and that has, you know, obviously been one of their bigger weaknesses over the past few seasons. I think one of the, the failures, you know, that you could attribute to the lack of success has been that inability sometimes to come up with the goals to be really threatening because what the Union have done consistently is be very good defensively, is be able to soak up opposition pressure. They are a, a, a counterattack team. They, they like to be direct whenever they get the ball. And now they have, I think, the, the personnel to really do that. Uh, when you consider, you know, Curtin's trident now uh, of uh, Carranza, Ura, and uh, Gazdag, that you just have three very, very good attacking players that uh, can make you pay in a lot of different ways. So it's good to see, you know, it's, again, when you just consider how little they've spent, that so much of this has been about, like, youth development or just, like, good moves on the margins. It's it's a great story on, on top of that. And like I keep saying, it's the best union team that they've ever had. I, they're, they're just so complete in so many ways. I know that so often we want to be negative. So often we want to look at this situation and think, well, everyone's rooting against us or, well, this could go. I mean, obviously, once you get to the playoffs, you know, in one game, anything can, of course, happen. Um, but I just think this team has shown a real ability to to play under pressure and, and thrive under that pressure and succeed. Uh, there are some potential tricky matchups for them in the playoffs. Uh, I'd like to avoid FC Cincinnati because we've just typically not played well against them. But I do think, you know, as, as far as the East is concerned, Union are the best team. And I, I think over the course of the entire MLS, too, there's, we are the one of the two or three teams that I think teams really do not want to be playing in the playoffs. I think it's it's us, LA, and Austin are, are the three teams that I think um, will give people the most headaches and those problems. And especially against the Union, we consider just the defensive record as well. Uh, that I think has to, to give people a lot of pause. Yeah, the Union have scored the most goals in all of MLS so far this season at 68 goals for and a measly 22 goals against, which is by far and away the lowest amount surrendered by any team uh, in the entire league. And I mean, when and you look at... What's crazy about that, too, is, you know, you look at uh, the expected goals, too, that the Union are overperforming or underperforming depending on how you want to look at it by a little over 12 goals so they were expected to concede actually like 34 goals but they've only conceded 22 so part of that too is you know how those numbers are typically calculated is it takes you know the average shot position position of all the attackers and defenders and comes up with a number for how often would you expect that shot to go in the back of the net part of that obviously doesn't necessarily take into account you know body shape you know, uh, if the player's off balance, on balance, you know, maybe someone closes them down faster. Obviously, goalkeeping, which which the Union have a, a fantastic shot stopper and Andre Blake. So, um, yes, it's you can maybe make the case it's some overperformance in, in some ways defensively. But even if you know it was exactly like for like, this would still be the best defense in uh, in MLS. So uh, that's that's a good spot they find themselves in. And on paper, I mean, you look at the the schedule the rest of the way for the Union, it's very favorable in terms of, you know, who they're they're matched up against. On Saturday, uh, they they go down to Atlanta to play Atlanta United. Not a very good team this year. They do have the uh, the friendly against Pachuca the following Saturday. And then uh, they wrap up on the road against Charlotte and then finish up on a decision day at home against Toronto. Yeah, so... Two away games, which could which could obviously be a little tricky, and typically, when you're away from home, and that that's why it's so important that the union, you know, finish top of the East, finish potentially even, uh, you know, with the Sports Shield, because you're guaranteed any game you play for the rest of the season will be at home, including uh, the, the finals. So, um, 
yeah, the, the ability, you know, home field advantage really has mattered in the MLS historically. Uh, and even though, yeah, like you said, Atlanta, Charlotte, not the best teams, but still anytime you're, you're going away, it's always going to be a little bit of a, a tough challenge. Um, but I, I certainly believe the Union, really Union need to win two out of their last three. I would not be shocked that LA, you know, have some more points dropped in them. Uh, just when you consider the way they've played over the recent weeks, it's not it's not a, a stretch for to you to imagine that they even a draw. Um, and then, you know, obviously that gives the Union a little bit more wiggle room in, in how they perform. But I still don't think it's crazy to say that the Union just went out this season. Um, Atlanta, Charlotte, not particularly inspiring teams. And then Toronto at home, nothing to play for from Toronto. That can go either way. Sometimes you see teams play a little, I think, a little more free with that in mind. You know, that they're not afraid to make mistakes and therefore, you know, might lead to better attacking play. And, you know, we've seen some strange results on, like, final days across all, all, all leagues before. Um, and sometimes a goal goes in early and the team's like, we're done. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, just sort of the, uh, the tidal wave crashes over that and uh, you get a big, a big win. Um, it's always hard to tell the mentality of how those teams are, it's going to go. And, I mean, you look at L.A. Uh, the rest of the way when you're looking, you know, supporter shield-wise. Sunday, they uh, they host Houston, not a very good team this year. Uh, but then their final two matches of the season, they're on the road against Portland and on the road against Nashville, who right now I believe are both playoff teams in the West. Yeah, so uh, Portland is the sixth seed right now, and Nashville's the fourth seed in the West. So two playoff teams that L.A. kind of has to maneuver with in the final uh, few matches of the season where the Union only really have to deal with one. Yeah, and, and L.A. too. You know, Houston, obviously, uh, not great. They just fired their manager, but also just recently beat L.A. 2-1. So, you know, like it's it's not inconceivable. And, yeah, um, Nashville with, with Mukhtar is, is obviously a, a tough proposition for, for anyone in Portland as well. Always a strong team. Um, it feels like we talk so much about LAFC, about Austin, about the Union. It's just going to be the Timbers again or the Sounders somehow. Like, that, that's that would be, I think, the most MLS result out of all of this. You know, these kind of exciting teams that, that play a little, like, different style and um, are really, you know, each kind of has their own thing about them that I think makes them exciting. And then it's just, it's just Portland again <laughs> somehow. That would absolutely suck. Um but we'll see, you know, how things shake out over the next couple of weeks. It's exciting uh, that the union just continued to be one of the more dominant forces in all of sports, um, and especially since you know they're our squad. Uh, I will be at Subaru Park on Sunday, not for soccer, but for the Premier Lacrosse League Championship game. A lot of Philly ties there, so if you're in the area, if you're home, no Eagles game on Sunday. They play Monday Night Football, so if you want to get some, uh, you know, quick feet hardcore action uh and get a chance to take in a championship game come out to the uh the pll championship at subaru park uh on sunday at three o'clock it's on abc as well at home so be sure to check that out uh but speaking of the eagles matt they get their first win of the season against the uh the hard knocks hyped up detroit lions 38 35 um very interesting matchup i don't see how jonathan gannon is a head coaching candidate anytime soon after his defensive performance. But you get the Minnesota Vikings on Monday Night Football, which will be uh, a very fun and interesting matchup. Justin Jefferson coming to town. And uh, first home game of the year is always rocking. And we all know what happened the last time the Vikings came to the link. So very excited for that matchup. Yeah. Uh, couldn't they get a pink slip game for Justin Jefferson? You know, something like that. That'd be uh, That would be great. But... Yeah, it's uh, 
interesting, like, first result for the Eagles. I, you know, I think people have been maybe a little too critical about it. I think, again, memories are short. We forgot how the lines in a lot of ways were a little more competitive than I think people remember them to be. Uh, you know, ask the Ravens about the Lions last season. You know, like, just you get you get these odd results, especially first week of the NFL season. You, you know, this is when teams have had the most time to plan as well. So when guys are at their most healthy. Uh, so that's why you might see some, like, oddball results that, that don't always translate. Um, so I, I would hesitate to make too many sweeping, you know, decisions about the Eagles defense and, and you know, even in some ways the Eagles offense or about the Lions. It's you know, we, we need a little more time, I think. But the Vikings is an interesting proposition, of course, because we saw that Green Bay defense, I, I think, is very good. And I think the Vikings were able to make them look, at times, very bad. And uh, that may point to the fact that the Vikings have a very, very strong offense. We know all about the, the receiving core that they have. We all we know all about the, the weapons they have. But defensively, too, I mean, they gave Aaron Rodgers nightmares. And uh, that's not something that happens very often unless it's like the first week of the NFL season because we can all remember, or maybe we can't because, again, memory is short, the Packers getting absolutely dusted by the Saints uh, week one last year. So I, I do think that it's, it's a tricky matchup for, for uh, the Eagles. Uh, strange, too, that we have two Monday night games the second week of the season. Typically, And almost similar like, kickoff times, too. Yeah, I was so confused when I looked at that. I mean, cool, I guess, but I, I just uh, – that feels – like something that maybe should have been the first week. I don't yeah. totally understand why. I, I think the Emmys might have something to have done maybe. with that, but it's just strange that... Uh, <laughs> also that weird were... that the Emmys were on a Monday. Right. I, I don't know what happened. I... <laughs> I, I'm I'm not sure who's to blame. Is it the supply chain somehow? Is that... <laughs> Can't get enough broadcasters. Everything is the supply chain's fault somehow for everything, so maybe that's why. Uh, or maybe, you know, they just didn't have enough broadcasters that could hack it like they did on Monday Night Football. Because um, <laughs> what an abysmal game that was. Um, I think, you know, and we'll have uh, Eagles enemies later this week with uh, the athletic Minnesota's Arif Hassan, friend of the program. It was a very fun and entertaining episode that you won't want to miss. Um, but I mean, I, I I love all of the you know key matchups in this game. The Vikings interior offensive line, which Arif and I talked about, going up against this Eagles you know front seven is going to be a nightmare for the Vikings uh, because the Packers front seven isn't necessarily as you know deep and as talented as the Eagles, and especially if you know Jonathan Gannon remembers that Jordan Davis is on this team, that'll be very valuable. Uh, and then you look, you know, the Eagles have a formidable secondary across the board for the first time, I think, since the Super Bowl season. Um, and I think this one's even better when you have Darius Slay, James Bradbury, CJ Gardner-Johnson, and Marcus Epps playing as well as he is. And then you have Avante Maddox as your your slot corner. I think that's a super talented and uh, formidable secondary that's going to be going up against a very talented receiving core. Uh, and then I just don't know how I feel about Dalvin Cook wearing his college number. Number four looks absolutely gross on him. Bizarre. <laughs> like, I'm really it's, – it's jarring to, to look at. But, yeah, I think the Eagles, too, like defensively, I think I take more of that first half than the second half. You know, a lot of times we do see where teams get up big and maybe you just go a little, like, prevent and, you know, teams are able to make up the numbers a little bit. And that's – I, I, I think the, the true Eagle self is is more of what we saw in the first half there uh, defensively and, you know, just 
were constantly stopping the Lions in, in you know, th- a lot of three and outs, and they looked very impressive. So um, outside of that first drive and that first half, but there really wasn't much to, to talk about from, from the Lions' perspective. So um, Vikings are definitely going to be a more challenging task, though, I, I would say, than the Lions. Yeah, 100%. And uh, obviously when, when football's in season, fantasy football's in season, and uh, we're going to check in just with our fantasy teams throughout the year. And it's brought to you by our pals over at Trophy Smack. Matt, right now, if you go to trophysmack.com, you can win a lifetime of greatness. You win a lifetime supply of Trophy Smack hardware, plus a special shout-out from investor extraordinaire in Trophy Smack, as seen on Shark Tank, Mark Cuban. Uh, one grand prize winner will receive a customizable Trophy Smack hardware for life, exclusive access to new product drops before launch, one Mark Cuban signature belt and congratulatory video clip, and 25 losers will receive a 10-pack of participation ribbons because, hey, if you didn't win, you've lost. So if you go to trophysmack.com now, you can fill out that information and enter for a chance to win a lifetime of greatness at trophysmack.com. And you can also use our show link, which is linked in the show notes on audio and in the, the uh, YouTube description, uh, to go get your your fantasy football hardware for the season because you got to upgrade that fantasy lifestyle. You got to upgrade your league's trophies, not those dusty ones that you got next door to your uh, your neighborhood karate dojo or anything like that. So go to trophysmack.com and use our link in the description to get uh, discounted rates on your hardware. Matt, how'd your fantasy team do this week? You know, uh, well, I got to say, uh, one of your co-hosts, Dylan, uh, his dad absolutely just beat me against the ropes. Uh, <laughs> really tough. Uh, he had, like, Justin Jefferson, uh, Pat Mahal, like, I just got absolutely washed. Uh, beat my wife, though, your sister, Sarah, uh, in our uh, – we have a significant others league. Uh, so, like, my two main money leagues, I, you know – some mixed results, uh, but some weeks it just goes against you, and then you, I mean, what choice do you have? Yeah, I got absolutely trounced by a friend of Dylan Mazzola, uh, Zach Carbonara, in my, my one league. It is year 10 of this league, commissioned by one Mikey Ostrowski. Uh, you know, he had Lamar. I, I, I felt good going into the, the weekend because he started Allen Robinson on Thursday night, and he was an, an absolute non factor. Uh, but he had Lamar Jackson. He had the resurgence and rebirth of Saquon Barkley. Uh, he has Jonathan Taylor. Uh, Gerald Everett scores a touchdown for the Chargers. And then, of course, he had Javante Williams as well on uh, Monday night for the Broncos. And uh, I had Devontae Smith in my lineup who gave me an absolute Oof. goose egg. Um, but I have, I have Justin Herbert, Devontae Adams. Jerry Judy was a, a fun little last-second swap in for DK Metcalf to give me an ounce of hope on Monday night. Um, but Devontae Smith and then Matt Prater absolutely uh, kicked me where it hurts, all pun intended, because he only had one point for me because the Cardinals, uh, I'm guessing Kyler Murray got an early copy of Call of Duty because they looked absolutely terrible against uh, Isaiah Pacheco and the Chiefs, who scored his first NFL touchdown and led the Chiefs in rushing on Sunday, which was pretty neat to see. But I lost 145.42 to 123.66 in my opening matchup of 2022. Yeah, I felt I felt really bad for Sarah because, you know, people say all the time, like, oh, that person had their best week against, like, I always get someone, like, she legit, like, I'm, I'm it's going to sound like I'm exaggerating. I'm going to sound like one of those guys telling their stories, but I promise you, 
I've crunched the numbers. I think out of like 13 regular season uh, games last year, like eight times that person had their best. Like she had by far the most points scored against her. Like when you looked at the points she scored compared with other people, she went like four and like 10 or something uh, in the regular season. She should have gone like nine and like, like six. Like she it wow. just, she was just, so unlucky and so i felt bad because we also do in that league uh top scorer gets a little like money bonus every week so i was the top scorer this week by a, a pretty significant margin um because i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna do the roster bait thing but i've lamar jet lamar jackson deandre swift saquon barkley justin jefferson um that was like the <laughs> the heavy hitters were, <laughs> were out last week and i felt i felt bad she did very respectable though uh and just got Again, just supremely unlucky. Well, hey, in a uh, in a devil's advocate situation, there at least the the winner circle money stays in your house, right? You know, like it, that's that is the nice thing. Like uh, our wins are combined, right? Uh, so we'll do some fantasy. How how the best balls go? Ooh, best balls, we're doing all right. Uh, <laughs> you know, best balls always always a real roll of the dice. Uh, we got two leagues we're looking. Very nice in one of them. I'm already, uh, eh. <laughs> I'm already, I'm already out. I did not do as many best balls as, uh, as I've done in years past. I cut it down significantly, but, um, we got some lineups that I think can, uh, can do some damage over the course of the year. Yeah. In terms of the daily stuff, I feel like you and I did really well. You, you had your two best ball leagues that did well. And Thursday night football, I had a hundred dollar parlay hit on, uh, the Rams and Bills, which was, I was sweating it out because Matthew Stafford looked like, uh, he was he was just not going to pull through for me, uh, but he did eclipse the 225 plus passing yards that I needed. So thankfully that uh, that went through. But gonna need the Eagles to start covering a little more because not being able to cover three and a half against the Lions was a tough uh, pill to swallow. Yeah, I yeah, I think too the the lines will settle down now because you have uh, a little bit more information. You know, and obviously then the lines will adjust to that. But I think it you know. First week is always challenging because there's, you know, I think I can't imagine how many people are out on survivor pools just based off of, you know, like the 49ers, even the Giants. I, you know, I think we're, we're a surprise in a lot of ways. I'm sure no one likes to talk about it, but the Dolphins absolutely handling yeah. the Patriots. Weird. Weird how we just don't want to give to it any credit whatsoever. They look uh, good. You know, it's, believe me, I'm, I'm fooling on the two and on experience. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just think – Week one always offers up a, a little bit of a, we a tie. Week one, we almost had two. Yeah, I, I couldn't by the same score. Eyes. Could not believe my eyes with the uh, the Bengals Steelers game. It just it felt like a sick joke. That many yeah. field goals. Even the announce. You know, like it's bad when the announcers are like, "What is going on?" Like <laughs> just when the announcers who have seen it all and are, are very well prepared and are professional um, are. Uh, are just as bewildered as like the average fan. I think that that's in a, a bad place. I saw this tweet by a, a doable doink on Twitter. One of my favorite tweets of the weekend. Absolutely loved it. Got to give a lot of credit. Camera pants, a football player who fumbled Joe Buck. And here's Johnson responsible for that goal line. Fuck up. He's distraught because he's thinking that what a failure is. You think he should kill himself? Troy Aikman. Watch Metcalf alone at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> just, Art. modern art right there amazing i you know 
some of these announcers are just like in totally different worlds. <laughs> like, so what is, what is in, in, in such a different place? It reminds me so much of like the, the TNT NBA crew where it's like Jeff Van Gundy's just crying about something. Mark Jackson is like leading a, a sermon half the time. Like it's just, uh, and Marv Albert usually no clue, <laughs> no clue yeah. who's on the court even. So I, uh, I really enjoyed that this week and it was nice having, uh, having football kind of dominate the, uh, the the Sunday afternoon and evening again. Yeah. Uh, I think this was my favorite tweet, you know, very Eagles related. I talked about it on the most recent episode that's up uh, that you guys can go back and listen to that I recorded on Monday. Uh, this is from uh, Dennis Selman on Twitter. He said, for Eagles fans not happy with how convincing uh, the win was, note that week one is weird. 2021 playoff teams playing against non-playoff teams went one in five across the league. The Eagles were the only such team to win. Listen, that's greatness. That's week one, baby. Uh, and at, at least nobody is as terrible at their job as Nathaniel Hackett because that Monday night game was brutal. Uh, Here's and the I think- thing to remember, and and we talked about this a lot in like the NBA because this is typically more of like an NBA situation where a coach is hired before you know a star joins a team. And, you know, there, there's no guarantee that these styles line up in the same way or that they have the ability necessarily to coach. You know, it's it's a different feeling coaching the Broncos maybe in like a more transition year or maybe in a year without the expectation of having Russell Wilson and, and having to, to work with that. I, you know, it's week one. You don't want to say too much, but there was definitely some uh, some some cowboy behavior, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> There was some great tweets from that game too, um, and I think you know, just the the piss poor clock management. And I watched Andy Reid for more than a decade, and he would never do such a thing. And I thought the uh, the funny tweets that I that I caught were just you know remakes of uh, Russell Wilson's Broncos Country Let's Ride. I saw Broncos Country Let's Die. Broncos country, let's cry, and uh, Broncos country, let's kick that ball. Sixty-four yarder, Kyle. When you have the chance to go for sixty-four yards, you—I mean, you just have to do it. That's not—not not even just that. It's when you have the chance to go for a sixty-four yarder with your kicker. Shout out Brandon McManus, Temple Tough. Uh, you know, he going into that kick was one for seven in his career on field goal attempts sixty yards or more. Hey, but he's tried it seven times, you know, so it's like. And he tweeted, he said, I told him to get me to that hash. I got to make the kick. So dumb. I mean, just, yeah, not a, not a great week one. I would say for the, uh, for the Broncos out there. Great shout week to, one for the quotes. Smith. Great, great, great quote. Content wise. We're living. Yes, Shelby Harris uh, saying let's ride in his post-game interview after getting traded to the Seahawks. And then uh, to all the haters that wrote Geno Smith off, he didn't write him back. That was just an all-timer from a guy. And it's hard to really conceptualize that Geno Smith has been in the NFL for a decade. Yeah, yeah. He's he's had a a long career. And listen, good performance by him. Because let's not forget, I think... As much as it was about Russell Wilson, like and, and the Seahawks and and him returning, it's just as much about Geno and like the opportunity to prove himself. I think a lot of people writing him off in, in a lot of different ways, and um, 
you know, the chance for him to be a starter and like kind of own that role because let's be honest, Drew Locke is I applesauce. Like that 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 guy is just not not capable of getting it done. So um shout out to Geno Smith. Yeah, Drew Locke caught strays earlier this summer from the U.S. Open Twitter account, and then he caught a stray on Monday night uh, when SVP brings Ryan Clark on after every Monday night game. He was using the Telestrator and uh, shadow spotlighted Drew Locke on the sideline and basically said, when Drew Locke is here, you know the Seahawks are doing something right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's tough. You know, I, I, I can console my, myself knowing that Drew Locke's made a lot of money and uh, he's going to be able to have a, a nice life. <laughs> yeah, and his, his legacy will be him dancing on the, the Broncos bench and being remixed with every single song under the sun. Yeah, or I, I, when I think of Drew Locke, I think of, there's a video of him like in the tunnel and he was just saying something to the effect of, sometimes when I throw it, I have like no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> and... Uh, there we go. You know, that's just uh, very, just very similar to the quote that we got from Nick Chubb as well. I don't know if you saw that quote. Uh, they asked him, you know, the the Browns were playing the Panthers this weekend. They asked him about going up against Baker Mayfield. You know, how do you guys feel you're going to perform? And he said, well, we all know Baker really well, so we don't really know what to expect. <laughs> <laughs> and you just know what? An I think that's, that's fair because you saw the best and worst of Baker in that game. So shout out to Nick Chubb. And then uh looks like the Cowboys season is uh pretty pretty close to done. Insert uh Simpsons uh gif old man walking through the door, <laughs> taking his hat off, putting it right back on, walking back out. I mean, Jesus. Tough scenes. I mean Unreal. Say, that was uh you know, it's not often that I'm like happy to turn the game off on Sunday night and go to bed, but I was like, ah, I'm just I'm ch- I checked out at like nine ten. I was like, this yeah. is not for me. This <laughs> this is this is not interesting enough for my attention. So, um, yeah, you got like two months of of Dakless, uh Cowboys action. So maybe maybe Jimmy G sweepstakes. Who knows? Been hearing Mason Rudolph a lot, which Mason is Mason Rudolph would be hilarious. hilarious. What's Duck Hodges doing? I mean, yeah, quack quack. <laughs> What's uh? Somebody ring up Andy Dalton. Bring him back to Dallas, you know? Yeah, he's down with the Saints doing nothing. They got Taysom Hill that can fill well, yeah, in Yeah, why not Jameis. Taysom Hill? Yeah, just get a they tight end up, to play for you. They freed up some cap space over the summer, I think, for Taysom, right? He's just making fake money. Ponzi scheme. Uh, Cowboys' only team in week one not to score a touchdown in the NFL, <laughs> which is pretty sad. Also, you'll love this a little teaser for Eagles enemies this week. Uh Arif Hassan always has a little bit in his uh, Twitter display name, and it used to be uh, Arif Hassan Hexagon, just p- making a play on all the NFT profile pictures. And he went to Arif Hassan, no longer a hexagon. So uh, <laughs> he had a line in our podcast episode that said, Viking Longboats won NFTs zero because at least at some point we've recovered viking longboats from under the ocean nobody will ever recover <laughs> the nfts from open sea uh very true i you know what that's <laughs> that's that's got some layers to it i like it uh matt we are one week away from season 43 of our favorite reality show survivor uh very excited for this season it's going to be tough for us to Uh, go with a winner, which we'll pick our winner next week, as we always do, leading into the episode. But figure figured we'd actually dissect this cast now that it's fully out there and uh, try to, you know, 
give everybody a little feel to get back into the buffs and snuff season uh, that is Survivor. But no, uh, no Northeast fire firefighters or anybody from New Jersey, which is tough. My um, cheat code has been, uh, <laughs> been it's nerfed. been found. Um, but looking at this cast this season, very interesting cast. A lot of different uh, competitors this year, and uh, the the tribes are are split up in a way that. I think are going to make things pretty interesting from the start. And I know last week you said uh, you're out on the blue tribe. Uh, so we'll see, you know, as we go, but I have the cast pulled up here. I'll read off some of the, uh, the ones that look interesting and their descriptions here from uh, what to watch.com. So our first one here, Matt from the Vessi tribe is uh, Cody Assenmaker, Who's from Honolulu, Hawaii. And he's in elevator sales. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting about elevator sales is there's usually like one company that services like the like 400 square miles. And it's like, that's it. So it sounds like a made up job, but then they're like usually the only one. And it's like you would actually be shocked how many elevators there are that need servicing and sales. <laughs> so yeah, you know, <laughs> elevator sales, it's just a job that, you know, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. <laughs> As it's ups and it downs, but it's mostly pretty good. Uh, Cody believes that having wisdom ahead of his time will help him communicate with players older than him, and his youthful spirit will allow him to relate to the younger players. He is 35 years old, so he's right in that sweet spot. He's got a great smile, too. Say that. Uh, we've got Lindsay Carmine from the Coco Tribe. Uh, she's a pediatric nurse from Downingtown, Pennsylvania. Her dream to be uh on survivor has been present for over two decades the 42 year old says that she's relentless resourceful and compassionate but people are surprised by how competitive she is especially as she gets older i will say nurses historically have done pretty pretty well on uh on survivor too so i don't know how many winners have been nurses but there have been like sari i can remember yeah was, uh, was a nurse and certainly one of the better survivor players of all time so you know they got good people. It's like how the bartender was always like someone people like gravitated towards like being good at survivor. Nurses are the same thing. You know, they, yeah. they constantly have conversations and wipe up poop. So I mean like <laughs> they they've seen it all. <laughs> They're afraid of nothing. They know how to deal with the shitty situations. Yes. Um we're two for two on great uh, occupation puns. So. <laughs> the Coco Tribe also has Cassidy Clark, who was cast for season 41 of Survivor, but the pandemic hit just days before she was set to play. The 26-year-old fashion designer from Austin, Texas, prepared harder during reapplication, and she's now back. Cassidy admires past player Kim Spraldon as her and her, quote, low-key assassin game and plans to, quote, manipulate and persuade others in her own way. And I'd I love to hear that it, that is what we like. If you're going to be Kim anyone, fan. be a Kim, Kim Spradlin. If, if you're bucking for my vote, that's how you get it. Uh, next up from the Vessi try, we have Justine Brennan, who you might think she's just an un unathletic girly girl. However, her father raised her to be the son he never had. Stemming from Marina Del Rey, California, the 29-year-old is in cybersecurity sales and says that she's, quote, way more emotionally intelligent than book smart, which she believes will be a huge attribute when interacting with the other players. Okay. You got to back it up. You're going to make those claims about yourself. You got to back it up. 
Uh, we've got Gio Bustamante, great name, also on the Coco Tribe. Having quit his job to join Survivor, 36-year-old Gio Bustamante is arriving from Honolulu, Hawaii. The project manager says that laziness and people who don't have common courtesy are his pet peeves. Hello, Deshaun. Uh, when asked to describe which past player he'll most like, uh, he'll play his game most like, he said it would have to be a combination of uh, John Cochran and Boston Rob. I am not as physical as Rob, but I will be strategic like Cochran. Good luck, pal. I was shot at Boston Rob saying he's not strategic. I think I think Boston Rob read that. He'd be a little upset by that. You know? Yeah, let's not forget Boston Rob held daycare court. <laughs> yeah. Good little credit. Good little credit to old Rob there. <laughs> Next on the Vessi tribe, uh, at 43 years old, Neka Ejeri is the oldest woman on season 43. The pharmacist from Weatherford, Texas, immigrated from Nigeria and is a mother of two with a third on the way. She plans to play like Sari Fields, who played hard without seeming uh, too on the surface. I can influence others to make decisions, and they'll think it was their idea the whole time, she said. Again, you're going to compare yourself to Sari. I got to see it first. I got to see it. Also, the way that this is worded, like, is she competing on Survivor pregnant? <laughs> I think. That would be <laughs> wild. I don't uh, know if that would be a first or not. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, and then we have Mike Gabler from the Baca tribe. He's a 52 year old heart valve specialist from Meridian, Idaho, a self-described intense, energetic, and fun person. Mike thinks he'll play the game. Most like past player, Sandra Diaz twine. She was always in the right place at the right time. She had phenomenal strategies and gameplay. Get bad vibes off Mike. I'll just say that. Yeah. Mike feels like we won't be talking about him much. That's it. Sorry, Mike, but. Uh, the next player close to home for us as well is Carla Cruz Godoy from Newark, Delaware, where she's an educational project manager. The 28-year-old grew up in a low-income household to Mexican immigrant parents. Carla lives by the motto, if you don't like something, change it, and will utilize her resilient nature and eavesdropping skills to take the prize. I like the inclusion of eavesdropping because maybe she'll go Tony route and build like a spy shack, and I, I would like to see that personally. Bring yourself have... in your sand. You know, let me see that. <laughs> Just, you, you know, hand binoculars. We have James Jones on the Coco Tribe, who's a 37-year-old event planner from Philadelphia. When he was 12 years old, he won the United States Chess Open, the largest chess tournament in the U.S., for his rating bracket. James thrives and finds a certain comfort in chaos, which he believes will lend a hand in him becoming the sole survivor. I, you know, one of my regrets in life is being as old as I am, which is not really that old, and still not understanding how to play chess. Gotta maybe I should call James. Maybe he'd be able to help me out. And then uh we have just a, a Yule lookalike, Owen Knight. Uh it's like Yule just, and Woo. Like Yeah. Uh on the back of tribe, Owen Knight is a thirty year old college admissions director from New Orleans. He considers himself an unassuming triple threat which will be the key to him winning the $1 million. Quote, I would love to play a similar game to Adam Klein. He kept his threat level low, had good relationships with everyone, and was his authentic superfan self. I don't want to be mean, but I'm, I think that may be the first time someone said they want to model the game after Adam. Yes. 
Uh, not a, not no, an easy, easy to replicate game, I would say. Yeah, very difficult. Uh, the Vesey Tribe also has Noel Lambert, a 25-year-old from Manchester, New Hampshire, and a U.S. Paralympian who competed at the 2020 Summer Games in Tokyo. After an accident, Noel had her leg amputated in 2016, but has never let her prosthetic define her. She plans to channel Kelly Wentworth's second season in her own game, her tribe mates didn't think she was a big threat, but she found hidden immunity idols and created blindsides to further herself in the game. Okay, I like the ambition. Uh, then we have Sammy Layadi, uh, who's 19 years old from Las Vegas. Uh, we got to talk about the occupation here. I need at least 10 <laughs> seconds on being a pet cremator. Listen, is that can't be just like, that's it. You just like, Burns the pets once it passed on, and that's it. That is all he does. There's that many pets. That just seems egregious. That seems like the thing from House Hunters. It's like I'm a pet cremator, and my wife is <laughs> is a macaroni art specialist. Our budget is two point one million dollars. Like a pet cremator. I've that is never a heard wild of that. It's like, thing. I could see that as a. A task you may have to do as a part of being, you know, some other job. Yeah. But that being your sole job, like that's how you introduce yourself as a pet cremator. At 19 years old. <laughs> I'm a little worried about this one. That's all I'll say. Well, it goes on to feel even more worried because he calls himself unpredictable, tenacious, and indecisive, and is into sports, fitness, and journaling. Sammy says that he's, quote, too conversationally and emotionally experienced with people to be unaware of my standing in the game at all times. He's also too determined to get comfortable. Those feel like words that will come back. Yes. Uh, quite the cast. Um, there's a few more here. We have Jesse Lopez, who's joining the cast from Durham, North Carolina. The 30-year-old went from being a gang member to turning his life around with a political science PhD. Jesse has researched voting behavior for years and believes he can adapt to any environment and build relationships with anyone. I'm definitely bringing an academic mindset to the game because I've spent more hours thinking about how people vote than Sandra and Boston Rob combined, he said. Invoking the names of uh, <laughs> some very powerful people. Yeah, be careful. <laughs> Invoking the names of the Island of the Idols. Uh, <laughs> then we have Ryan Madrano from the Coco Tribe. If you ask Ryan why he believes he can be the sole survivor, he says that he's a triple threat who can socialize, use his strength, and be quick at puzzles. The 25-year-old warehouse associate from El Paso, Texas, was born three months early with mild cerebral palsy. Doctor said that he would never walk, but he was able to after four years of therapy. Okay. Respect. Love it. Then we have Dwight Moore from the Vesey Tribe. He's 22 years old and a graduate student from Collierville, Tennessee. Dwight Moore, um, he hopes to emulate Wendell Holland's Ghost Island game, where he had a strong social game, create bonds, and performed well in challenges. If I set my mind to something, I'm giving it everything until I see that goal met. Again, some some interesting names people are like Wendell's not someone I've seen idolized very often. Yes. Wendell had a great great season though, so you know. Fair enough. Speaking of house hunters, I'm pretty sure he has his own uh, HGTV show now. <laughs> and good for Wendell. Uh we have Elizabeth Ellie Scott. 
who is a clinical psychologist from Salt Lake City. The 31-year-old considers herself to be clever, perspective, and authentic. When she's not on Survivor, you can find her rock climbing, skiing, and partaking in karaoke at dive bars. Ellie believes she'll win thanks to her, quote, natural social skill and cutthroat strategy. I can tell you right now, that's going to be a fan favorite pick. Anytime people like have any sort of psychology background, I think people really uh, gravitate towards that. Yes. They're, they're winner picks. Uh, we have Mariah Young from Philadelphia as well. She's a proud teacher. The 28-year-old describes herself as colorful, energetic, and joyful, and enjoys shopping, traveling, and creating content. She believes that being, quote, super lovable and not an immediate threat will help her win season 43. And that has been a viable strategy. And I would say she describes herself as colorful, and that is a <laughs> a very good <laughs> descriptor for her if you have not seen her cast picture. Colorful is the word. Yes. And then the final castaway, Janine Zhang, uh, making her way to Fiji from San Francisco. She is a UX designer. Uh, the 24-year-old who enjoys backpacking, photography, and running thinks that she can be the sole survivor because, quote, I can create relationships with people from completely different backgrounds and juggle the nuances of my different alliances. Giving us a little Xander vibe there with yes. the, uh, the job and some of the, the self-descriptors. So. Quite the cast. Matt and I will make our full-blown decision on our uh, podcast winner, which if you haven't tuned in for the last two seasons of Survivor, Matt and I picked the runner-up <laughs> each of the last two seasons with uh, Deshaun and Mike. So we'll see if uh, we can improve upon that and actually pick the sole survivor this season. A couple Philly connections, which is interesting, as well as a Newark-Delaware uh, spot there as well. But Survivor comes back next week, which means we're talking about it on the podcast. So if you're a Survivor fan, we are your place to be for Survivor pre-shows. Um, and Matt, we do have breaking news here as we wrap up the show. Uh, Reese Hoskins was hit on his hand by a pitch and exits the game and heads for an x-ray. Great. Just in fantasy baseball playoffs, depending on Reese Hoskins. It's cool. Thanks, Miami. <laughs> Unreal. Um, make sure you guys are following us on the socials at underground PHI on Twitter, Instagram, uh, follow, Facebook.com slash underground sports PHI, twitch.tv slash underground sports PHI. Follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Castarina. Follow me at KBIZZL311. Check out the website, underground sports Philadelphia.com. Subscribe to the podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We are there. Leave those five star ratings and reviews as well. It helps more people find the show and get involved in the action underground. And of course, subscribe to the Underground Sports Philadelphia YouTube channel. You get full video episodes of every single podcast on our network. And we're on that uh, hashtag Road to 1K Gauntlet Challenge, which Top Bins threw theirs down last week. You guys are going to be going back in time to 2006, which I think will be very, very exciting breaking down that Germany and Italy World Cup match. Uh, I think that'll be very entertaining from you and Dom. Yeah, one of my favorite games of all time. So get us to 1K and uh, you'll get to hear me talk about it. So subscribe to the YouTube, smash that like button, ring the bell icon, and of course comment down below on everything we talked about on tonight's show and anything that comes to mind when it comes to your favorite Philadelphia sports teams and or Survivor. Big thank you to our sponsors who make this show happen, Main Auto LLC, Security 21 Security Systems, Paul J. Gillespie Incorporated, 
the Dental Wellness Center at Vineland, pick up Tomahawk Shades, Kenwood Beer, and Bino Board. All of their info is linked in the description on YouTube and in the show notes on audio. And this has been episode number 464 of Underground Sports Philadelphia. For Matt, I'm KB. Stick around. Top Bins is about to go live on the Twitter and Facebook, as well as Dom's Twitch, I'm pretty sure. So stay tuned for that as Matt and Dom break down everything that did not happen in England this week because of the passing of the Queen. Queen. And uh, breaking down the the Champions League where Liverpool got a much-needed win, Matt. God bless. God bless him. Uh, So for Matt, I'm KB. Until next time, we're getting the heck out of here. We are signing off. Peace. Peace.